0: To go right into the scripture reading this morning, I want to encourage you to turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 7, and I'm going to be reading uh, starting at verse 53. We've been in a series called The Savior Who Frees You, and looking week by week through uh, these different passages in John's gospel, and uh, we uh, we come to John chapter 7, verse 53, and if you'd Follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 840, and I'll begin at verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. In placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman is been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now you know that usually at this point, I say, This is the word of God. This morning, it's a little more complicated. It's not more complicated because I have any less confidence in the authority of the Word of God, the inerrancy of the Word of God, the infallibility of the Word of God. But there are complications with this text that we we need to talk about. It would be easier, in many respects, for me to uh, put them aside and preach a nice, neat little sermon on this passage. I love this passage um, and if I did so, you would be blessed. I would have gotten off easy and you'd probably like me more. But I wouldn't be serving you at well as your pastor because there, there are problems with uh, our passage this morning. And if we don't address them, then many of you will, some of you at least, will will go off to university and you will hear things from a university professor that may completely undo your faith. Or you may read a book or listen to a preacher who will say some things that are true, but will say them with some other things that are not true and they will have you questioning the very foundation of what you believe. You may hear them say, some true things like, we don't have the original Greek and Hebrew manuscripts. Well, that's true. Or, or you may hear them say, we don't have the actual document that Paul wrote or Moses wrote. That's also true. And you may hear them say, the text that we don't have, there are differences between them. Again, that's true. But as they are saying those true things, they are liable to combine them with some false things and... Having never heard about these things in the church, you may find yourself being tempted to believe these untrue things. Untrue things. It, it may feel to you like a big Santa Claus cover-up that you've, you've been finally made aware of, and it could undo the foundation of what you believe. You may hear people saying things like, there are so many differences in, in the manuscripts. We don't really know what God originally said. That's not true. You may hear people say, the, the original manuscripts, they might not have been true or accurate anyway. There might have been mistakes in them. It's not true. You may hear people say that the church has changed the Bible as it went along in order to be able to teach doctrines that they wanted to teach. It's not true. But you may be tempted to believe those things because you had never really thought deeply about how we know what God has said, how we got the Bible that we possess in our hands today, and how God has faithfully preserved it for us. And so I think we need to stop, and particularly at a passage like this, to stop to dive into some of that detail, even if it'll stretch us, even if it'll take a little bit of work. The foundation of our faith is too important for us to be superficial about this and to... Uh, come about it in, uh, in, in, in a way that would be really irresponsible, given the kinds of attacks, the kinds of suspicions that are brought to the Word of God today. Now, I want to start by talking about how most people think that we got the Bible that we have today. When they do, they often compare it to the telephone game. Uh, you've probably at some point either heard of or played the telephone game. You know that big, you get a lineup of people, somebody whispers a message to the person next to him and gets passed down the line. And once it gets down to the end, we all laugh at how, how silly and, 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 and garbled the message that originally started off got. I need you to know this morning that we didn't get the Bible by telephone there are some significant and important differences between how God actually gave us the scriptures that we possess today and the silly children's game of telephone that we often assume or think that uh, was, was used in the transmission of the scriptures. So let's talk, talk about some of those, those differences. L- let me start with the most obvious the Bible didn't come down to us by people whispering into the ears of the person next to them. It was written down. may seem like a very obvious thing, but think of times when you've either seen or heard of the telephone game. It, it wouldn't be a very fun game, would it? If people actually recorded the message from the, from the original person it, and then showed the, the, uh, the next person down the line what they had written. Like the the whole point of the telephone game is you can't quite hear everything that the person next to you said, and we don't quite remember everything that we've been told. And so that's where the mistakes come, right? It it wouldn't be a very funny game if if we were actually writing down those things and passing them to the person next to us. Before the invention of the printing press in the 1400s, scribe was a respected profession people would give over their entire careers to faithfully and diligently recording, write, writing down copies of important, important manuscripts. Uh, there would be many important writings would be copied in this way, but in particular, the most important uh, document that was recorded and, and given to us this way was the scriptures. And so you would have... Uh, really, assembly lines of monks cloistered away in medieval uh, libraries and monasteries, faithfully copying out the scriptures word by word, paragraph by paragraph. And a supervisor who would be overseeing the work would be checking for detail and accuracy and, again, a faithful transmission of what God had, had given. Also, scribes would typically work with the Oldest manuscript that they possessed in that particular library or manusc- or, or monastery. So it wasn't just as if th- one person was writing writing down the paragraph and then they passed it to the next person. And they handed no. This they would be working sometimes with with manuscripts that were from two hundred years previous or three hundred years previous, and 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 so you would have have that opportunity for a generations of people to be faithfully settling, passing on the scriptures that, it, that it had been given. The Bible also didn't just come to us by one line of manuscripts. So with the, with the telephone game, if you just have one line of people uh, in, in, that, are, that are lined up passing along the message, once you get to the end, if you didn't know anything else, you wouldn't really have anything to compare it with. And so if, if we just had one line of manuscripts that we were relying upon, it would give you one line of evidence, one family of, uh, of, uh, of copies, if you like. The evidence that we have and the manuscripts that we've been given for the, for the scriptures are not like that. They're far deeper than that. Just for the New Testament alone, we have 5,700 handwritten Greek manuscripts, uh, they are from different parts of the world and different traditions of the church there are another 10,000 handwritten copies in latin and many others in coptic syrian armenian and georgian altogether some 25,000 handwritten manuscripts of the of the new testament alone and and what that means is that when we are talking about how do we know what god said we are able to compare not just one line, but, but we have copies of manuscripts from different parts of the world, from different tr- traditions of the church, different lines, and, and more manuscripts and more families of manuscripts and more diversity in those manuscripts mean that there's more opportunity to check and compare and see where mis- mistakes might have crept in or where uh, accuracy can be confirmed. 25,000 manuscripts to compare may, may sound remarkable. I, I hope it seems remarkable to you. It's remarkable to me. But did you know that you could, even if all 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament were burned and destroyed before the printing press was ever developed, we would, we would still know almost exactly what the entire New Testament said. The reason for that is that in addition to all of those manuscripts and all of those different languages in all of those different parts of the world, we also possess the writings of the early church. We possess, we possess from a very early stage in the church's development, you have commentaries and sermons recorded and passed down to us through, uh, through, through libraries and, 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 and antiquities that have been preserved. What that means is, as you go back, you, you would see, for instance, a, a commentary on the Gospel of John. And they would, they would quote the text, give some explanation on it, they would preach on it. it. It would be like finding a collection of my sermons with all of the quotations from the Bible in that collection of sermons. Interestingly, we have so many of those that there are only over one million quotations of the scriptures just in the, the writings and commentaries of the early church. So, so burn up all of the manuscripts, and just from those one million quotations of scripture, you were able, scholars would be able to, to reconstruct the New Testament just from those quotations. Incredible the amount of evidence that's been preserved for us. Now, recreating the original message in the telephone game is difficult. And it's difficult because you're only ever listening to the person at the end of the line, right? The Bible isn't like that. The Bible didn't just get passed down, and we only have the manuscript that happened to survive at the very end. We have manuscripts from, from many different periods in history and we're able to compare and contrast them. So for the last 500 years, scholars known as textual critics, and critic doesn't just mean someone who's trying to attack the text of the Bible, it's more like a movie critic who says, yeah, this is, this is a good movie, this is a bad movie. Uh, the, the textual critics would study those 25,000 manuscripts and those 1 million quotations from the early church, and they would, they would study for uh, to, to compare and contrast and see where, where there may be differences, and to compare where, which differences may be pointing us back to what was originally written. If you're still not impressed with the reliability of the text that we have today, let me tell you about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because in 1946, there were three Bedouin teenagers who were serving as shepherds. And they were tending their flocks. And I'm sure, I'm sure they were doing a good job, but they're teenagers. And even if you're a Bedouin teenager raising sheep, uh, you like to, to do something else other than raising, raising, tending your flocks. So one of them, uh, through a rock, just playing around, throws a rocket into, the, into uh, the side of the cliffs, and it goes into a cave. He expects that as he throws the rock in there, he's going to hear a thump as it lands, hits against the rock. Instead, he hears something shattering and thinks, oh my goodness, what have I hit? He and his other uh, shepherd friends, who is a cousin and, and uh, another family member, they head to the cave and f- trying to figure out, oh, well, this has got to be more interesting than raising sheep. Let's go and look at the cave and see, see what we hit as they did, they discovered these clay pots. One of them had been shattered. And as they looked at those pots, they saw that they contained leather and papyrus scrolls. They they took those scrolls and th- thought, boy, we've, we've got something. Let's go to the market and see how much we can get for them. And uh, they've Something got into the hand, one of those scrolls got into the hands of an antiquities dealer, and before long, the, the peop- archaeologists and people who deal in ancient antiquities descended upon that area and they found uh, 11 caves filled with the largest deposit of ancient manuscripts that had ever been discovered in, in the last century. So it was a huge find. And they they came came up with tens of thousands of scroll fragments representing almost 900 manuscripts. And many of them were more than 2,000 years old. Among them, there were many manuscripts, as I said. One of those manuscripts was uh, a copy of the Scroll of Isaiah. There were were 19 copies of the Scroll of Isaiah, by the way. But one of them was um, almost almost fully complete. Uh, uh, And and that particular scroll was more than a 1,000 years older than any other scroll of Isaiah that had previously been found. So now you'd have the opportunity to test. Boy, there must have been a lot of mistakes. There must have been a lot of things that they would discover. Over a 1,000-year period, there must have been a lot of stuff that crept in. Now we get to find out what Isaiah really said. And as they compared line by line, word by word, verse by verse, the, the academic community was astounded at the faithfulness by which God's word had been preserved. That, that this scroll that was a thousand years earlier than anything that they had previously had possessed was almost in, in all of its significance, it, it had been faithfully preserved and a reliable record To what God had given to his people. You need to know that the Bible didn't come to us by telephone. You need to know that what you are holding in your hands today is essentially a faithful recording of what God has given to his people. And we can have confidence in that. And you need to know, not just for yourself, I think it's important for yourself. (laughs) But you need to know for, for friends and neighbors and colleagues around you who have been led to believe that the Bible is just a product of the church. It's something that just got passed, or passed down and changed and modified as it went along. It's just not true. The, the word that God has given has been faithfully passed down. Now, I want to try and deal with today's passage. I've said to us that the Bible didn't come to us by telephone, that he's given us a faithful a, pres- a preservation of of what he's written, but the passage that I read to you at the beginning may likely be an exception, and let me explain why. The King James Bible that we have today is a faithful and reliable uh, translation that was made in 1611, and it has been and it, it has been the the uh, the thing that has shaped the church in the English-speaking world for the last 400 years. But over 400 years, a lot of discoveries have been made in biblical texts. In in the last 100 years alone, over a 1,000 Greek manuscripts have been discovered. And with more discoveries of more ancient texts, and as I said, some of those were hundreds and hundreds of years earlier than anything that we possessed before, with that came some discoveries. Didn't, didn't see any major differences. There weren't any new doctrines introduced. There weren't any signs that the, the church had gotten a hold of the Bible and tried to, to turn it into something that it wasn't. Nothing that, that affected people's uh, faith and doctrine. But there were, there were some differences. One of, the, one of the differences you see, for instance, shows up in Psalm 145. Psalm 145, if you read it in English, it's a great psalm, right? You you love Psalm 145. I love Psalm 145. But if you read it in Hebrew, it's it's what's known as an acrostic. It's where they take the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse represents another line. So you start each line with an Aleph, Beit, Gimel. You work down your way through the alphabet. If you read it in the King James, you will read those verses, but you go back to the Hebrew and you see they missed one of the letters. You've got all of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet listed except for one. And you're like, boy, who would go to all the trouble to write an acrostic that, that was made up of all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet and skip one of the letters? It doesn't make any sense. Then they discovered copies of the Psalms in the, the, Dead, sea, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And what they found was when they looked at these scrolls of the Psalms that were more than a thousand years older than anything that they had seen before, guess what? That, that letter was in there. That extra verse was in there. And they recognized at some point, somewhere along the line, that, that one verse, that one letter in the Hebrew alphabet and the verse that's associated with it, it got, it got dropped, it got lost, and it was passed on um, as is. If you, if you read Psalm 145 in any Engl- almost every English translation made in the last 50 years, you will see verse 13 is twice as long as you'll, you'll find it in the King James. They put the verse back in. They, they put the missing line back into the text. Now, is your faith going to be any different if you read that or don't read? No. Is there any new doctrine being introduced by that line? Absolutely not. But there have been some improvements in understanding of what God has originally given to us in the Scriptures as more manuscripts have been discovered over the last 400 years. As they have compared them, they, the, those differences, most of the differences are Negligible. They say that 70 to 80 percent of the differences in the, uh, the the textual differences in the manuscripts are minor differences in spelling. So, for instance, uh, the 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 name John. Sometimes it gets pronoun- It it gets written with two two letter two um, two N's. Sometimes it gets written with one. Oh, there's a difference, uh, which. Which one was it originally written with? Well, we, we might want to delve into that, but in your English Bible, it doesn't matter. It's going to be written J-O-H-N, right? So 70 to 80% of the differences are of that kind. They say that 1% of all of the differences in the 25,000 manuscripts that they have found today have, have any significance whatsoever. And when we say any significance, even that is negligible. So, for instance, in Romans 5.1, there are some ancient manuscripts that say, uh, we have peace, and there are other ancient manuscripts that say, let us have peace. Now, somebody needs to sort out, did it originally say, let us have peace, or does it say, we have peace? We we need to make a decision one way or another, but is your faith going to be affected by which of those options? Absolutely not. And so when we talk about differences in the manuscripts, they're of that kind of uh, of level. They don't affect affect any matters of of doctrine, of faith, of our understanding of what God has said. Now let's get to today's passage. Today's passage is one of two significant, in the sense of size of it, uh, passages in the New Testament with... Uh, with, with some significant differences between, between manuscripts. Uh, the difference is this. In the most recent, the the, the, the manuscripts that you come across from about eighty thousand on, um, in most of those manuscripts, you see the passage. And many, many of the oldest manuscripts and the most reliable manuscripts that we have today, it's just not there. It wasn't... Uh, it it, it wasn't included in the text. As you, uh, if you look in your pew Bible, almost any Bible translated in the last hundred years, the passage will be specially marked off. And for instance, in the ESV, it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. And and they've got those big square brackets around it to say, "This this is kind of... It's different. This is to be treated differently. You've probably read those lines. This is not, uh, or the the earliest manuscripts do not include this. You may have read that, but then what comes after? It's this great story, and you're like, boy, this is this is so good. Um, You're not even thinking about what uh, what the line uh, in those brackets and and worrying about that. People's. the the textual critics whose job is to spend their lives comparing all of the manuscripts, all of the evidence, the best understanding that, that, that we have today is that this was a true account with Jesus actually interacting with this woman, very likely said all of these things, but it was never included in John's Gospel. It was never a part of the original text. In fact, one of, the things that, one of the reasons that we believe that is that none of the early church leaders prior to the 4th century ever mention it. In, in the Eastern church, there's never any mention of it until the 10th century. And so what'll happen, you'll be reading this commentary on the Gospel of John and it'll, it'll be going down verse by verse, paragraph by par- paragraph, down to chapter 7, verse 52, and then it just jumps to chapter 8, verse 12. And you're like, why, why, why is nobody commenting on that portion of Scripture? Probably wasn't a part of the original text. Then there seems to be this transition period in history where it starts showing up in different places. And again, it it was likely a true story. It's an old story. It likely actually happened. But at some point, people started, some of the scribes started including it in the text. But when they did, they included it in different places. Sometimes it's after John 7.36. Sometimes it's after John 7.44. Sometimes it appears right at the end of John's gospel, almost like an appendix after John 21, 25. In one manuscript, it shows up at the end of Luke 21. Then when it does show up, often it shows up with special marking. So they'll put an asterisk. Um, They'll put markings to say, we're not really sure about this one, but it's an awfully good story. And, and so that's why today this passage probably deserves to be marked apart, marked apart as it is in your text, as separate, special. Um, this is an old story. It's an important story. It's an interesting story, but probably not a part of the original scripture. It's not the word of God. Now, can we say that with 100% certainty? No. I'm not telling you not to read it. I'm not telling you that it's, a, it, it's not a good story. But it, what I am telling you is we probably need to think deeply about these things because when we're talking about the scriptures, we're talking about life and death. This particular passage, if it's there or if it's not there in the scriptures, your faith isn't, isn't at stake. There isn't any new doctrine that's introduced. Uh, there's not anything that's taken away if it's not there. Uh, Jesus, his compassion for sinners and his, his uh, attack on religious hypocrisy, that gets repeated all through the gospel. We, we know that that is consistent with who Jesus is and what he taught. We just don't know whether this particular passage was ever included to be was, was ever uh, a part of the word of God. Now, some of you may feel like a, a message like this is splitting hairs. Like, Paul, this is way too technical. This is not what we normally talk about on Sunday morning. And you might be thinking, what are we, what are we doing? What's this all about? Who cares whether the Bible is, is exactly what God wrote? And who cares whether, whether it was actually faithfully preserved through the centuries? Why are we talking about this? And here's why we're talking about it. Because your faith and mine will either rest on the scriptures as the word of God with certainty and conviction and and belief that that calls for our obedience or your faith and mine will rest on human tradition, human opinion, and whatever our heart is moving us to feel or say and do and believe. If, If, for instance, you went away and said, I don't think that the Bible is the word of God. Here's what I think would happen you'd probably still think, hey, the Bible's a good book. It's one of the good ones. It's right up there. It's important. There's a lot of really good stories in there. But what would happen would be once you got to some of those passages that teach about things that you don't really like, or once God puts his finger on some things in your life that he wants you to change and you see it clearly there in Scripture, when that happens you and I will be tempted to say, I'm not sure that's the one. I'm not sure God put that one in there. I I think maybe the church kind of came up with that because that just doesn't seem right to me. And what I've been trying to tell you by telling you about 25,000 manuscripts and a million quotations from the early church is that you and I do not have the freedom to say, I'm not sure this was really part of the original biblical text. That that just is off the table. We do not have the freedom to say, I'm not sure whether God really said this one. The the, the manuscript evidence is clear. God has spoken and his word can be trusted as reliable, as trustworthy, as something that we can stake our lives on and live in, in response to God. That's important because the Bible isn't just another human book. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. Bible isn't just another human book. It is God speaking through human authors. It is him faithfully giving us a testimony of exactly what he wants to say to you and to me. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 says, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For prophecy never was ever, uh, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What that means is that God didn't just give the gist of what he wanted to say and leave the authors to kind of make it up as they went along kind of fill in some of the blanks and, and, and kind of put it in, in a little bit of their own, own interpretation, a little bit of their own opinion, mixed in with a little bit of what God, that's not what happened. God spoke it, he breathed out what he wanted to say into the human authors and then by his Holy Spirit he preserved the final product so that what, what they wrote was exactly what he wanted to communicate. And it's important that we recognize that it gets down to the details. It gets down to the words. And so the Bible isn't just kind of true. The Bible isn't just true in a general kind of way. It's true in the specifics. True to every last detail. What Jesus referred to as the jot and the tittle. The the smallest markings. It was all what God wanted to communicate. For example, chapter, chapter uh, 30, uh, verse 5 in Proverbs says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. It's a reminder that, that the details, the specifics of what God wanted to communicate have been recorded for us, and they speak to us. Jesus said in John chapter 17, verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. He didn't even just say, your word is true. Like there was some other standard by which we could compare it to, to say, yeah, compared to that, it's true. No, the word is truth. It is the thing by which we compare everything else in this world to ter- determine whether that's true or not. It's a standard. It is the perfection. It is the means by which a, any question is solved. Anything that we are bringing to it, we we are not in the position where we say, well, I'll take a little bit of the Bible, mix in some popular psychology, some human wisdom, a little bit of of, uh, scholarly common sense, and, and some popular opinion, and that's how I'll settle the issue. Jesus says, your word is truth. It is our standard. It is the thing by which all other things are evaluated. It trumps every opinion. It stands over every tradition. It defines truth. And that's why it's important that we care about it so deeply. That's why it's important that we understand how we got what we have today and whether we can trust it. And we can trust it. We can rest in it. We can know that what God has spoken has been faithfully preserved. Now today it's it's popular for people to say, I love Jesus. And parts of the Bible are really good too. They're just some of those parts that I I don't, I'm not into that. And what the scriptures do for us is to define what it means to love Jesus. Because we don't just get to make it up as we go along. We don't just get to to keep the parts that we like and, and leave the parts that we don't. In fact, our response to the Bible is our response to God himself. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, Paul wrote, If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. You say, Well, wait a second. Paul, you you just these are just the things that you wrote, right? No? You need to acknowledge, he says, that what I am writing to you is a command of the Lord. God has superintended this process so that what What's come here is not my ideas, not my interpretation, not my opinion. It is what God wanted to say to you as his people. And so with with the scriptures, we need to recognize them as a command of the Lord. Do you see the Bible like that? Do you see the scriptures... Almost as if God, were, if he were here today and speaking to you as an, in an audible voice, that is, a, is it with that level of authority that you approach the scriptures? When you hear the word of God, not my word. I'm, I'm not talking about the authority of my word. I'm talking about the authority of his word. Do you receive it as the very word of God? As you do, you begin to see the Bible doesn't just teach us. The Bible can actually change us. It's not just a book of of precepts and principles. It is a book of spiritual power. A a book that has the ability to transform us from the inside out. In Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Here it talks about the power of the Word of God to actually revive the soul to bring life where there was previously death. Some of you I know experience this. As, as I read the Bible each day, sometimes there are hard passages and sometimes there are easy ones. Sometimes there's ones that just, just naturally uh, are, are easy to relate to and experience God's love and power in, in, from them. But regardless of whether the passage is easy or difficult, When I open up the Bible and ask God to speak to me from his word, it's almost as if my spirit is craving for spiritual food. And I feel the filling. I feel the satisfaction. I I feel God doing something by his word in my spirit as I turn and I listen to him. And I don't experience that with any other human book. A lot of good books have been written. But God's word has the power to revive our soul, to give life where there's death. And I want to to invite you to experience that reviving of your soul this morning. To, To experience a reviving of the soul that only God's word can give. To do that, you first need to believe it. You need to accept that this is the word of God. Because the first temptation that the serpent brought in the garden was, did God really say cause you to doubt, to bring about questions in your mind? Can I really trust what he has spoken? As you accept it as the word of God, then you need to let it settle matters for you. Because the next thing that the serpent did in the garden, after causing them to doubt, he then presented other options. You'll be like, God, this is going to be a good thing. And Satan will come into your life and do the very same thing. He will seek to tempt you and to misdirect you away from God and his word. And so you need to, you need to have the, the conviction, God has spoken and that's going to settle matters for me. I'm going to submit to what he has said. I, I'm, I'm not going to go looking for a second opinion. Even if you do believe it, though, even if you do accept it as good as God's word, and many of you have, it does very little reviving of the soul as long as it's sitting on the shelf. You have to read it. You have to turn to the word of God, open it up, and let God speak to you through it. That, that's how it revives our soul. And so even if we've been talking about, about Bible translations this morning, I, I always tell people the best translation is the one that you'll actually read. That's our problem. Our problem isn't that we didn't, get, we didn't choose the right Bible translation. The, the Bible translations are good. The problem is we don't read the Word of God. We don't let it wash over us and inform us and change us and shape us. And so I want to invite you to, to do that. Let, take time to read the Scriptures daily. Let them speak to you. Let God use His Word to revive your soul. And as you do, don't make the mistake the Pharisees did. Jesus confronted them in John chapter 5 and he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness to me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Bible isn't just a collection of good rules for us to keep. It's not, it's not just a, a list of do's and don'ts. The Bible is ultimately the story of Jesus Christ and his love for us. The Bible is his plan to rescue us. It's his invitation to come to him for life. And so I want to invite you to come. Come to him through his word. Come to receive what only he can do in your heart and in your life. Come with an open heart ready for him to change you. As we look to him, as we trust in his word, and as we resist the temptations to doubt and get our second opinions. Let's look to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the word of God. I thank you that you have faithfully preserved a record of exactly what you wanted to say to us. And you do speak. You speak to us through the Bible, through what you have given. Thank you for not leaving us to wonder what you said or what you're saying. Help us to make time to read your word, to listen to what you say. Father, would you help us to help others who have been confused in all of these matters and really have had any confidence that they might have had stripped away with doubt. Help us, Father, to lead others to life the life that's available to all who trust in Jesus Christ. For we ask you in his powerful name, in Jesus' name.